to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is entitled Suffocating Authority. times over the years. I think the very first episode we ever did was something called authority figures and, and looking at cinematic depictions or, or depictions of authority figures in in cinema. Um, and we've also looked at, I guess, the concept of suffocation, like kind of in like a social setting. We looked at, um, we did episodes many years ago about uh, men with gravity and women with gravity in films in which, you know, a, a film, a character can feel kind of suffocated by the world around them. This week, it's called the episode's called suffocating authority, and there's a there's a kind of a double meaning there. So in one sense, that phrase can mean like, um, you know, suffocating authority is like a form of a form of authority that is suffocating. In, in other words, like suffocating is something that an authority figure might do. Um, they are a suffocating authority. You know, they suffocate people. But then you can read it another way, which is that. Um, that suffocating is an act that one might do on authority, um, you know, the act of suffocating an authority figure. And in each of the films we're going to be talking about, they're all going to explore whether those two things can kind of happen simultaneously, i.e. can authority be suffocating and can we also suffocate authority kind of simultaneously or within the same realm or within the same sort of circumstances. And in some of the films we're going to see that um, sort of flip of the table quite literally in a lot of cases, uh, but they're all going to, they all have some sort of motif of suffocation and power dynamics and, and, and how sort of um, you know, suffocation can sort of serve as a metaphor in all these films. But the films we're going to be talking about, uh, the first one's going to be uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1948 film Rope. We're then going to move on to Milos Forman's 1975 film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And then we're going to finish off with Sean Durkin, who I believe we've chatted about on the show before. He's definitely um, a favourite director of mine, a modern director of mine. Um, and his new film, The Iron Claw, which came out, I suppose, in 2023. Uh, but only seeing it now in, in London. But let's kick things off now with Easter Hitchcock's 1948 film, Rope. So uh, if you haven't seen this one, um, it's a pretty classic Hitchcock, you know, murder mystery type situation. We've got two friends um, uh, named Brandon and Philip. And uh, reading into this film, there is sort of a, a homoerotic subtext to this. But we're not going to explore that so much because uh, this, this film is based on a play. Um, but basically, it's, it's about two guys who are let's just say, you know, there's companions uh, who kill a third friend of theirs. Um, kind of as this Nietzschean kind of, I mean, it's almost more sort of like Albert Camus-esque in a way, but it's kind of like they kill their friend kind of as a, as a, simply as a means to enact the perfect murder. And they do so by suffocating him with a piece of rope, hence the name of the film being Rope. It's like the first scene of the film is him like, <coughs> And suffocating, and what I mean, what I mean, I'm saying they're kind of enacting the perfect murder. It's kind of got a very, very Hitchcockian. You know, this film is very similar to Dial in for Murder, which we've seen on the show, we've talked about on the show before. But you know, a lot of these Hitchcock films and films of the '40s and a lot of the noir films, uh, a lot of it's about that sort of like the art of murder. And this one's about you know, the, the, can you pull off the ultimate murder where you sort of wave it in everyone's face? 
uh, and get away with it. So they, they kill this guy, they put him in a box and they literally um, serve dinner on him. They serve dinner on the box with all his friends and his girlfriend and his father and stuff like that. So it's sort of eat over his dead body and sort of uh, be able to parade around and, and, and brag about, they don't say it out loud throughout the film, but to themselves kind of be so proud that they were able to do that. And we've got a sort of a, you know, the, the, the two sides of humanity where, where Brandon is very sort of um, superior and feels that he's entitled to do, do these sort of things. And then Philip is sort of the other side of him or the other side of the self, I guess you could say, which is sort of guilt-ridden and and, and feels that they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to get away with it. And then in steps the character of Rupert played by uh, the all-knowing Jimmy Stewart, who... Um, kind of picks up as the day goes on uh this dinner party goes on what's actually going on so i want to talk about this film through the lens of it being kind of like how it kind of depicts the the endurance or the inevitability of of basic human morality like traditional human morality kind of like no matter how far we go uh, in radical sort of moral philosophy we'll never be able to escape kind of basic instinctive senses of human morality and I kind of want to build off what we talked about. We talked about this a lot. I feel like a little bit of a one-trick pony when it comes to like films of the 40s, particularly noir films and Hitchcock films. We always talk about how, that you know, in the context of all these films, it's always like a running theme where we see this gross act of immorality, usually murder at the beginning, and then no matter how clever or logical or rational or cognitively um, uh, competent the perpetrator is they always get their comeuppance they always get found out and that's kind of the running theme of a lot of these films is so as to say to the audience you know you, you'll never get away that no matter how clever you are the human brain is not um, is not um, a strong enough weapon to avoid eventually um, being found out and, and guilt you know getting the better of it and that sort of thing and this is essentially what this film does as well but I want to talk about it on a sort of an elevated level not just saying how it's like you know murder will always come back to bite you in talking about these themes of suffocation and, and authority and downward pressure and dynamics and that sort of thing, and this is something that I'm not really reading too much into the film, but it is very much so sort of explicitly explored in the dialogue of the film. Um, the, the, Brandon has this kind of self-appointed authority because, the, I mean, the, I think they talk about Nietzsche literally in the film and it's kind of this bastard, they do because they talk about Hitler and they talk about this sort of bastardization of Nietzschean philosophy, which is that, you know, you know he has the famous book Beyond Good and Evil and... This he sort of talks about how traditions of this this binary of right and wrong are kind of like human constructs that were a means of of controlling the masses, and it's something that inspired Foucault later on in history, and he's certainly relevant to the next film we're going to talk about after this. Um, and how you know morality is simply a, you know, a question of of of, of context and. Um, you know, it's a it's a thing that's done by the means of the powerful, but but the, the this this higher percentage uh, in society, this upper echelon of society, should be the ubermensch, should should be able to be the Superman, um, should be able to come up with their own cultural ideas and revolutionize new ways of looking at things, and and should be sort of empowered to murder people that they deem through their intellect to be able to to murder. So in the same way that in in something like Dial in for Murder, we have this this kind of idea that immoral acts you'll finally you know you'll finally get out, you'll finally get found out, you know, you, you'll get your comeuppance. I think this film is also sort of saying, he who thinks that he can enact his own personal sense of morality and suffocate the world with that, suffocate people below him with his own personal sense of subjective morality as this Superman figure. Uh, and this word super is really important. It's sort of someone that sits outside the system, external to the system, a superimposed sense of morality on other people. And you can imagine, you know, you meet people like this all the time who sort of have a very radical 
idea of right and wrong, that they come up through through logical processes rather than listening to their gut or listening to their heart and and putting it on to you. And, you know, sometimes when you're reading enough Foucault, you kind of start thinking that way as well. And, and sort of they, they want to impose a sort of a new radical, um, very much thought out, cognitively manufactured form of morality on the rest of the world. And I, and I suppose what this film is getting at is no matter how intellectual you are, no matter how intellectual the Jimmy Stewart um, character is, uh, he ends up still being the voice of reason in the sense that he's able to look past that in practice. And it's very much a sort of uh, boots on the ground, uh, you know, when we really um, – a real salt of the earth kind of aspect of it to it, I should say, not boots on the ground. Um, that when you, when you see these things on the street level, when you see them in practice in real life, you, you realize that how absurd, and I guess that's the Camus sort of aspect of this, I guess, the, how absurd it is to, to think that someone can come, can somehow rationalize murder and that be okay. Uh, no matter how smart you are, there's no way you can rationalize that sort of thing. We all have a very um, a visceral gut instinct to that kind of thing. And it's very fitting in a, in 1948 because it's post the Second World War. And we've talked about this a lot on the show about how the Nazis and the Third Reich were very much people that that manufactured in their heads a very, you know, they weren't just crazy guys running around doing crazy things. They actually had a very specific and rigid manufactured moral program and moral mission that they adhered to um, sort of with, with with robust intellect, but no matter how robust it was, we talk about this all on the show, we talk about this with Snowtown, um, The Conference, which is a film about um, Nazis as well, um, and, and more recently Zone of Interest, we've sort of touched on it as well, where, you know, you can rationalise you know, profound acts of evil. It's not, a, it's not, evil is not a mark of idiocy. It's quite the opposite of, of, of time. So we've got this sense of that suffocation um, and, and, you know, the suffocation at the hands of, uh, at the, of the evil. Evil, you know, the, the suffocation uh, enacted by evil people is something that's done sort of – it's sort of superimposed. It's done by people like Hitler who saw themselves as greater than, who saw themselves as a superman, something greater than the system that already exists. But is it always that case? Are we always suffocated by authority in that way? And is that always the way that we see suffocation take place in – uh, in the in the realm of power dynamics and, and power imbalances. Well, before we're going to get on to our next film, let's just remind you, dear listener, you are listening to the People Power radio station here on 2XX98.3 FM. Uh, stay tuned for more more quality radio here on 2XX and also jump onto our website to consider sponsoring the show or subscribing to the station. Uh, but let's move on now to Mr. Milosh Foreman. Uh, it's another game for Milosh um, here uh, with one who flew over, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, starring Mr. Jack Nicholson, who plays this, he plays Mick Murphy, who I guess in the film, he's kind of like this vaguely mischievous criminal who we find out, I mean, we find out he's guilty of statutory rape is the, is the crime that he's put on this work farm for. But he's, he's, you know, he's been a very mischievous guy throughout his whole life. He's been arrested a couple of times for being quite a violent person. And he gets sent to this mental institution because he claims that he is uh, insane or pleads insanity. And when he sits down, the doctor sort of says to him, look, I know you're faking it. And he's like, well, look, doc, you know, you're the man. Let's see how I go. And he sort of says, look, we'll leave you here for a few weeks. I know you're not really insane, but we'll give you a go. We'll, we'll examine you. And then once we figure out you're not, we'll, we'll chuck you back on the work farm. And... Um, and while McMurphy is here at this mental institution, um, the very infamous Nurse, nurse Ratchet, played by Louise Fletcher, who is one of the, the, the great, uh, no, I don't want to, one of the great movie villains, I guess you could say, of all time, um, he's under her watchful eye among all the other um and all the other patients at this hospital. And I want to talk about this one, how in contrast to what we're talking about, this, this idea of superimposed authority being a suffocating force, how seemingly benevolent power 
has this kind of subtle and sinister and self-perpetuating nature. So how we can be, how something that is seemingly benevolent can actually have this suffocating quality almost without us even realizing. And not only that, have a sort of self-perpetuating means of doing that. So I want to break that down into sort of three specific aspects. So the first is this depiction of seemingly benevolent power, or this depiction of care and protection. Um, so we see throughout the film, you know, at the beginning of the film when McMurphy first gets to the hospital, you know, everyone lining up to get peels and there's beautiful music playing and sort of easy listening kind of st- like string music um, and so sort of sort of light orchestral music, I guess you say, uh, and there's nurses in their nice white uniforms and they have very calming voices and, um, you know, it's a, it's a medical medical sort of setting, right? So when we think about medicine, we, we often think about, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a means of nurturing, getting people better. And this is where I say sort of the Foucaultian elements sort of come into it. Obviously, there's huge connections with Foucault's philosophy in this film. Um, and, and also just in terms of like the blocking and the positioning of the characters throughout the film, like Ratchet is always at the same level as the the patients. Like when they have their meetings, she sits on the same level as them. So there's this sort of like a facade. It's very much a manufacturing consent in a kind of Noam Chomsky kind of way. Uh, we'll get onto that aspect more in a second. But they, it's, it's sort of the, at its face value, this facade of the, the, the patients and the, and the nurses being equal. And it's really funny watching this film today because – we, we have become so entrenched um, in our respect for the medical industry. Like, people put doctors on such a high pedestal. We talk about doctors and nurses and put them on high pedestal for good reason. Like, they save people's lives. I'm not, I'm not sort of like an anti-medical profession, anti-vaxxer type person. But we do have to have – we do have to admit that we put the medical industry – I mean, think about how much, a, um, you know, doctors get paid and that sort of thing. We, we put a great deal of – we give a great deal of power to the medical industry. And we saw that through COVID as well. That we gave a great deal of trust to the medical industry when we did that and you might say that's for good reason but we can't deny that we do do that and i remember what and i watched this film even 10 years ago before things like COVID and things like that i remember having like such a different response to it versus the times i've watched it since like now i watch this film i like i almost like shed a tear like, i'm gonna say it's like one of my favorite films of all time i think nowadays but when i first saw it i remember kind of feeling like this is all kind of feasible like it's kind of a boring movie about a guy who you know, he's convicted of statutory rape and goes to this mental facility and gets sorted out. Like, that's what needs to happen when somebody, you know, goes against the grain that that, that, that tries to break free of, 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 of what we all agree to be a pretty final system of right and wrong. Um, but what we... The second element of what I talk, want to talk about... Um, is that this is actually a subtle means of control. And this is where I sort of say it has that kind of Chomsky-esque manufactured consent bent to it. So... Ratchet is clearly threatened when this agent of anarchy, McMurphy, enters the setting and starts to um, get the other guys in the hospital sort of said there's more to life than just sitting around and, and playing cards and smoking cigarettes. And, and, and she is threatened by the fact that he's able to light them up. And this is where the tension of the film um, finds its place, where we're seeing a bunch of very vulnerable people finally feeling liberated and ironically getting better from their mental states. And we see this ironic imposition of more control, more power, which is ironically making um, them worse, making them more mad. So as to say that... Um, you know, a, a system is predicated on people feeling that they are mad for not being compliant. And so to be able to fight against those systems of power, you have to be mad in order to fight against it. But that has a sort of paradoxical view because if you're mad, then we can't listen to you. Um, so you sort of, you sit outside. And this is, Foucault talks about this as well, about, you know, 
people in different um, epistemes and in different parts of history sitting outside of the circle versus inside the circle. And then we have this idea of someone being mad is nowadays as someone who sits outside the circle, but that's the very way in which you can actually revolutionize the system. Anyway, so this is very well depicted, obviously, in, in how Foreman catches captures Fletcher's um, Louise Fletcher's face and her austere and ever stern expressions and and even in the face of the pure joy of the baseball scene and, and stuff like that she just her face is like disgustingly just like still and not, and not happy to see her own patients getting better but I think the film goes as far as to say that like and this is the same I, I forgot about but it's a great scene where she's the only one that actually says that he that McMurphy needs to stay so it's almost as if to say like our sense of these you know obviously these are just characters in a movie but our sense of this kind of sinister benevolent um seemingly benevolent power is that it kind of it kind of wants us to stay in its grasp it kind of wants to push us it kind of wants to push us towards um a state of frustration because then it then has license to enact more control it's almost like it feeds off controlling us um, it, like it gets something personally like in terms of it it's got like an ego and it gets something out of controlling people who are um, liberating other people who aren't necessarily mad. It, it almost wants to drive people to a state of madness so as to give itself license to control them further. And this leads us to this kind of self-perpetuating element to it. So as, as I've already talked about, um, you know, if you can close off this circle of what is right and wrong, and so, so, as, to, so as to subvert this kind of Nietzschean um, idea that we talked about in Rope, which is that you know it's, it's it's preposterous to think that someone can see the world and and see morality in a way that's different to the masses. Eventually, someone does need to do that in order to in, you know innovate moral ideas and ethics. But when they do that, we can easily call them mad and therefore bring them back into our control. So there's a self perpetuating sense in in that sense. But but there's an, there's another sort of way to sort of think about it, another angle through which we can look at that. And so be, because you know. Because of the sinisterness of this control, it it, it, it it's so sinister, and and it it puts that constant but gradual pressure, that gradual but constant pressure on its inhabitants of of this hospital. It kind of guarantees an eruption of violence and resistance that it can then use as as measurable as its license to to bring us sort of back in into the control. And so, this is the true sinister element of it, which is that we actually get these little spurts. And this again speaks into that that manufactured consent idea. We get these little spurts of what seems to be like a proletariat revolution, right? We get these little spurts where we think that the people that are under the thumb are actually fighting back. And this is where we see this um, the subversion of suffocating authority, where Ratchet has been suffocating as the authority figure. And we get to a point in this film where McMurphy literally suffocates his author suffocates her in that he suffocates authority sort of as a as a as a sort of a, a means of counter suffocation and 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 and, and in that moment and the, the Christopher Lloyd shot where he's like nodding his head in I'd never picked up on that before would so powerful to, to think that those patients can't say it out loud but are wanting her to be strangled to death in that moment even though they're sort of egging it on and, and we always want to see her suffocate and die and we see it as an empowering act, what we don't see in the long term is this is ultimately self-destructive, that this is all part of a plan. This is all the means to get McMurphy, um, to, to, to give license to put more chains on this guy. And so it's ultimately more self-destructive. And and we see, sort of see a, a kind of fork in the road here in terms of depictions of self-destruction here. We see some of the characters after this moment or during this moment or, or just prior to this moment 
um, by by liberating, by revolution, by you know, by enacting revolution, by fighting back, by by finding themselves and individuating themselves. And the, the, the recourse from that's something they simply can't handle. Um, getting in trouble is something they simply can't handle, and then it becomes something that's literally um, self self defeating in the sense that it's suicidal. They become suicidal. But then we also see here is um, in terms of the McMurphy character, where um, as I mentioned before, almost that knows him at this point. The fact that he does fight back gives her license to then um, take a take a much more controlling. Um, you know, enact much more controlling, um, I guess, controls over him. And if we think about that today, we can say that everywhere, can't we? We see this in, in sort of any political issue you want to think of where re- revolution gets conflated with disobedience, right? Revolution or looking at the world another way or doing things differently as a means of liberation can very easily be conflated by by, by those in power as disobedience, as immorality, as wickedness, as evil, which then warrants heightened control. We can cont- we can catastrophize revolution, we can catastrophize dissent to then turn it into a means through which heightened control um, can be enacted. So in one sense, we talk about right, we've got this kind of got a conflicting thing happening here because in one sense authority is this sort of suffocating thing whereby someone sees themselves as an elevated, superimposed um, upper ep- echelon kind of person that that sees something revolutionary in themselves as, 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 so, as sort of seeing something greater in terms of morality than the rest of us and therefore they should be able to enact and suffocate us literally suffocate us to death even by enacting that that, that sort of super intelligent um, forward thinking means of, of 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 morality but then because that's such a top you know, that's such a such, such a tyrannical and murderous way of looking at the world power has kind of since then sort of taken this new route which is to 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 sort of sink its way through in much more sort of seemingly benevolent ways and now it's the ones that are disempowered that are having to go outside the circle um, to think of new ways to, to, to progress society progress society forward and could even say it's even more sinister now because the more that you can the more that you go outside the circle go outside the sphere of what is right and wrong uh, the more mad you are the more you're treated that you are mad. And it's funny, it's funny, I was thinking about this this week, the word mad has this double meaning, like mad is crazy, but mad is also angry, which can be very often, like, you know, in network, I'm mad as hell, I'm not taking it anymore, like, you can call someone mad, and someone sees it as virtuous, and someone sees it as crazy, and I think you definitely play, use that, that you know, use that that word in, in both contexts, in, in particularly with respect to cuckoosness. So let's try and reconcile this this issue here. Well, let's let's look at the third and final film today, and this is Sean Durkin's new film, The Iron Claw, and it's about this family, it's a true story, based on this family uh, in Texas. Uh, I think it was in like the late 70s or early 80s. I can't remember exactly when it is, but um, the the, Va- the, Von, the Von Erich family, um, whose father was a pro wrestler, like a, like a fake wrestler, and he tries to get all his sons to be pro wrestlers, like, you know, like performative wrestlers. And I want to talk about this in the context of today's conversation. I want to talk about how... I want to actually say how beautifully it it depicts the importance of brotherhood. I, I guess sort of how much it highlights how important brotherhood actually is um, in this context of of downward pressure and suffocation in in modern society. So we've got this archetypally strict father here who pushes all his children clearly too hard. And it's interesting because I think he actually, in being a father figure, he walks both of these lines that we've been talking about today. You know, both he's both an external imposition and internal, you know, intoxication or internal permeation of power. He's sort of both external and internal too. Um, the the thing that's being disempowered or suffocated. So he's tyrannical and sort of 
of a higher echelon in the sense that he's a father figure. So the father is supreme. Uh, you know, God is the father. God is the ultimate super, um, you know, supernatural authority figure, right? And so he has that fatherly quality where the children are subjects and the, the children in his family call him sir. So there's that, that sort of echelon-based power that we kind of talked about with, in relation to rope. But again, it's kind of self-imposed. I mean, it is sort of somewhat of a a choice of a father to sort of require that their children call them sir. They don't come out of the womb calling their father sir. It is sort of like a, a socially constructed dynamic. But at the same time, he's a father. So he's a member of the family, right? So he's kind of internal to the family as well. And he does love his children and he does speak of their success as the family's success. And that's why the children throughout the whole film you might you know if you haven't seen it might be hearing that first part and be like well one like hit back and you kind of think that throughout the film but you also feel like well they do also love him because he's their dad and he trains them and he's in the ring with them and he looks after them and he is a loving father in that sense and so um he's he's sort of able to walk that line between both being tyrannical but also sort of seemingly benevolent in the same way kind of like nurse ratchet might be um, so it's not just like they're, they're these these pri- like they're obviously prisoners in this jail, right? And I think probably to, to sort of really push that push that point home again, we see an almost identical scene. And why I did Cuckoo's Nest with this film is that I think it's been pulled straight from Cuckoo's Nest. But we see a very similar identical scene where we have this temporary sort of seemingly revolutionary, seemingly um, avenging act of counter-suffocation happening uh, coupled with a suicide, a moment of suicide, so as to say that to push back is a self-destructive thing um, or, or to, to, to sort of to, sort of, to, to be compliant with authority leads to a kind of self-destructive spiral where one will either do it to themselves because they can't take it anymore or uh, you know they can't take the, the, you know, the, 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 the consequences of fighting back uh, or they'll fight back but that gives license and, and also sort of rots them at their own core. So what's the solution here? Well, I feel like this film does a really powerful thing of kind of transfer, transforming our concept of fatherhood it kind of morphs or transforms this concept of brother of fatherhood into brotherhood itself, right? Because all these brothers love each other so much. That's really at the center of this film. And somehow it's got these two different dynamics that at the beginning of the film feel so unrelated, but by the end they're able to merge them somehow. Because at, at, the, at the heart of this film is really ultimately a celebration of brotherhood despite this kind of downward pressure from the father on his sons. And and I don't want to sort of talk about brotherhood, brotherhood as simply being something that's limited to biological brothers, right? Um, it's something that we can cultivate in all forms of relationships. And without giving too much away at the end of the film, we, uh, so without giving too much away uh, by reference to the end of the film, we do see a literal kind of transition where a formal, like a formal top-down father-son relationship takes the form of a more horizontal brother-to-brother relationship. So if we can sort of bring everything together that we talked about this week, I suppose we could say that within every person lies this temptation to see themselves as greater than everyone else, to have some kind of enlightened sense of right and wrong that no one else has, and and use that as a means to suffocate the rest of the world, um, to look at the rest of the world as something that sits within the circle that you're not a part of, to sort of play God, so to speak, and to, to give yourself this sort of self-appointed authoritarian view where you sit outside of things and... Um, you sort of enacted on other people. But eventually you will get sniffed out for that, right? That there's an inevitability that that doesn't work. So we can't just have that. And that hasn't existed for, you know, people People can sniff that out um, more than more than maybe they used to be able to. Um, 
But that also kind of simply invites then authority to take a new more sinister form, a more subtle form, where it doesn't sort of um, parade itself as, as power, but is much more subtle and, and it almost encourages its subjects to give off the impression that they're, that they're entitled to a counter uh, suff- form of suffocation, which ultimately guarantees the powerful to enact more power on its subjects. Right, so we're in a tricky situation. So, so, so perhaps the challenge now is not to do either of those things. It's not to assert personal power or to give license to a system to, to compound its authority through some kind of invented means of, of no, we're your protector, what you need to rely on us. Maybe what we need to do is to breathe some brotherhood into those with authority. That's all we've got time for this week here on Sacred Cinema, um, here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX or consider jumping onto our website if you're not there already to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring any of our programs. Uh, get in touch with us. Uh, you can email me at contact at jimmyberniscone.com if you liked. Um, but thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you again next week. Have a good one. Cheers.